Welcome to the White Bikini. My name is Marie White, and joining me today is my co-host, Nicholas Banton. Hi, Marie. How are you, Nicholas? How are you? I'm doing well. It's great to be back. Yes, we had a little break, but now we're back. The last time we were together, we spoke about the importance of LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And when we were done that podcast, we kind of gathered together and discussed our lack of knowledge of Robert McNamara. Yes, um, Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and LBJ, yes. I called him the Secretary of State, and as we discussed, it's important to understand who he was and how he contributed to who we are as a country now. Yes, there are some very important uh, seminal moments, if you will, in American history that were crafted by the decision-making process under uh, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. So, yeah, he's quite an important American figure. I have a couple quick facts about him. He was born, his full name is Robert Strange McNamara. He was born July 9th, 1916 in San Francisco, which is ironic because to me, San Francisco, where the hippie movement was, is where he was born. I suppose it's one of those strange quirks of history. It's, it is kind of a little quirky that that's the people that end up fighting him is where he was born. He graduated from high school in 1933. Another weird fact is he graduated from the University of California in Berkeley, where he got a degree in economics. Again, a hotbed of the hippie movement. Yeah, but I suppose the the salient fact is that that was perhaps a couple of generations away. Um, but interestingly enough, yeah, that that's Berkeley was such an important part of the counterculture revolution of the 1960s. San Francisco and Berkeley were the hub of everything. And granted, it was decades before, but it's just kind of ironic twist of fate in life. He did go to Harvard University and got his MBA, and he was for a short time working as an accountant, and he did teach at Harvard briefly. Oh, interesting. How long, does it say how long he was there? It says a short time. Okay. Where he, where I believe his career took off is in 1946, he was hired by the Ford Motor Company, which at the time was going through a very difficult time. He was part of the group known as the Whiz Kids. The Whiz Kids made changes to Ford Company that led it to becoming more profitable and getting its cards better reviewed and better sales. And he rose through the company very fast. And in 1960, he became the president of Ford. He was the first man outside of the Ford family to raise to rise to the ranks of the presidency. And he did launch several successful models the Lincoln Continental, the Ford Falcon, which are out to date now, but at the time they were very popular cars. And he ironically put in some of the first modern safety features to be seen in cars. Wow, that's an interesting big uh, piece of factoid there that um, his impact was, his, a, his ascension was so rapid, but his impact was so uh, meaningful. The Wiz Kids were an important group and we could probably take up a whole podcast regarding the Wiz Kids but they were the, the best and the brightest of his generation. And they moved quickly. There was about just a group of them. He is the main founder of the WizKids, but they rose in ranks very quickly, which I think, and you and I've talked about, is kind of that post-World War II boom. Robert McNamara was 
right in the middle of it. Yeah, right place, right time to make his impact on society. In 1960, he was elected, John F. Kennedy was elected president and McNamara was considered for both the defense and treasury secretaries, even though, and I never knew this, he was a member of the Republican Republican Party, and he was for his entire life. I think the difference, though, is that the Republican Party of the 1960s and was an entirely different beast ideologically. I think there was a certain amount of fiscal conservatism uh, and a pro-business mentality. So I, I think it's it's so far removed from modern conception of Republican ideology um, that it does perhaps seem strange to modern ears, but my understanding of history of that time, the Republican Party um, was an organization focused on fiscal conservatism and pro-business growth. So it's it make it would make sense that Kennedy would do something like that to bring the country together because it was a less partisan time. And Kennedy was a president that liked different opinions. And I think picking Robert McNamara for the time he did pre the sadness of what happened in Vietnam was a, a wise decision. In retrospect, McNamara was a wise choice for the, his cabinet. They did go through the Bay of Pigs together. Robert McNamara did help navigate him through a lot of settling down the nuclear war concerns. But as we both know, his role, unfortunately, his legacy is surrounded by what happened in Vietnam. Yes, and I, I think as we mentioned in the previous episode is that Vietnam precedes Kennedy, it, uh, it preceded Eisenhower, uh, it goes back to uh, Truman. So it was this festering wound in Southeast Asia, at least from our perspective and our anti-communist sentiment that Kennedy inherited and passed on to Johnson. And Robert McNamara was known for using statistics to make decisions about the military and make it more efficient. He tried to cut down on wasteful spending, often by merging programs into more efficient single ones. While he was in Kennedy's cabinet, he became good friends with Robert Kennedy, and McNamara was a big supporter of the space program and was one of the first people in government to suggest going to the moon. Wow, so he was a little bit of a visionary as well as uh, a numbers man. Full disclosure, I read his book when it came out in 1995, and we both watched The Fog of War. Granted, The Fog of War was based on his decision-making in Vietnam. And unfortunately, I think his legacy has been surrounded by Vietnam. But up until that point, he was working for good in terms of making things more efficient. I agree with that. I think with any war, with any complex political situation, uh, you're going to be tested. And I think with Vietnam, because America was, I, it's, it was an ideology rather than a, a fair assessment of the facts as to whether or not America could win and promote its interest in Southeast Asia. It was just this strict dogmatic approach. We have to win, we have to stop the communists, we have to do this. And, and I think unfortunately, when the facts belie the situation um, and when the facts run contrary to a particular brand of ideology, as we've seen throughout history, the facts tend to take a backseat to the ideology. And I think McNamara got caught up in that reality. And I think it's sad that the, what, what happened in Vietnam was terrible, but I think it's sad that a few years of what happened as badly as it was, 
it defined his whole life. And I'm sure that was pain for him, for him as his views on Vietnam evolved, as we all do. Yeah, but you get, you if you are the man on top, when the music stops playing, then you are left holding the bag, so to speak, if I can mix my metaphors. And I think when Vietnam went south and the Pentagon Papers were revealed, and the fact that much of the Vietnam policy was manufactured in spite of the facts on the ground and the huge, massive loss of life in Vietnam, American troops, the destruction of the environment. It's hard for McNamara to come away clean from those very ugly truths. McNamara ended the massive retalia retaliation, which in the event of an attack from an aggressor, a state would massively retaliate by using a force disproportionate to the size of the attack that was a policy from the presidency of Dwight Eisenhower. Instead, McNamara put in place the flexible response, which allowed more options for defending the U.S. president, for defending the U.S. President yeah. Kennedy very much wanted to fight communist revolutions and wars to stop the Soviet power from spreading, and McNamara supported this. Yeah, and I think we saw that in the Bay of Pigs. I think if the traditional military view was followed by Kennedy, we would have been fighting World War III um, in 1962. And I think it was important that a sober civilian voice was heeded by the president in terms of establishing the blockade while maintaining communication with the Kremlin, because we truly were on the cusp of World War III. You know, there were some miscalculations by our military. They didn't realize that some of those missiles in Cuba actually had live warheads. And so if we had taken a direct military approach, if we had bombarded Cuba, um, we would have been fighting World War III, no doubt. He advised Kennedy to blockade Cuba and stop the Soviet Union from putting more missiles there. And Kennedy agreed in their strategy, thankfully, as we all know, won. Yes, yes. You know, and I think I... The United States had to do a face-saving gesture, I think, by pulling out some missiles out of Turkey that were close to the Soviet border. But it was an opportunity for Khrushchev to save face, and it was an opportunity for Kennedy to save face. Um, and both men were able to walk back what seemed like imminent thermonuclear war. And I think this is a good stopping point because now we're getting into 62 and 63, and then, of course, it's the terrible assassination of John F. Kennedy. Yeah, which is one of the more transformative events in 20th century American history. Ken LBJ did keep Robert McNamara on. And in the beginning, they had the same vision of Vietnam and were working towards the same goal until the Tet Offensive. So what do you think? Why, why do you think the Tet Offensive was such an important inflection point? It was the most divisive battle of the Vietnam War, won the battle whether it was most counted, not in South Vietnam, but in the hearts and the minds of the American people. That's when peop the American public started to turn against Vietnam. Yeah, I think, We talked to... Sorry. No, not, not at all. I think we saw images of the devastation in Vietnam. You know, in addition to the the daily body count being read on the news by Walter Cronkite. Uh, Americans could see on their television sets the absolute devastation taking place in Vietnam. And much like the civil rights movement, 
America couldn't deny what was being presented to them. And so, yes, I think it was a combination of the follies of the decision-making process to maintain U.S. military operations in Vietnam, but it was also the humanitarian aspect of seeing little kids running and screaming in terror from American bombardment. And, you know, a disillusioned Robert McNamara resigned. He was unable to come to terms with the failure of his methods in the Vietnam War and his own responsibility for the war. And as we discussed in the last last podcast, LBJ, LBJ did not run for re-election. That's right. And fundamentally, one of the great lessons of Vietnam, and unfortunately, I think we failed to heed that lesson in Afghanistan, is that a, a flawed military premise that is the foundation of a of a greater military action is almost always doomed to fail. And, you know, we spent 20 years in Afghanistan and the Taliban is back suppressing women. And I think this is a, an aside from the conversation at hand today. I just listened to the news last week and an edict came down from the governing body in Afghanistan that is now forbade girls to attend school. So I saw that. That so yes so and I think Vietnam represents the same you know the 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 blood and treasure of America the blood and treasure of the Vietnamese people and in the end Vietnam is a communist country and, and I, it's more of a civil war yes and I think civil wars are just very very difficult places to be and you have to be careful with with which side you pick because a friend can become a foe very quickly when the inevitable tide of war changes and turns. And I think about this generation of Americans, John Kennedy, Robert McNamara, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and they ran the policy in this country. I'm going to start it from post-World War II, from 1960, almost up, almost up until 1990, the greatest generation. And I sometimes wonder, this could probably be a whole other podcast. Were they running off trauma from World War II and they kept thinking that America had to be the great peacekeeper until they realized too late for too many incidents that we could not be anymore. Yeah, I mean, America had emerged from World War II largely unscathed in terms of the homeland. You know, that's not to minimize the great losses of life in Europe and in the Pacific. But our cities were intact. Our industries were thriving. It was the dawn of prosperity that went, you know, from the late 40s all the way into the 1960s. So I think there was a sense of optimism and exuberance in American society. And we felt perhaps colored by a sense of divine providence that we had a role to play in the world and that we were special because the world was at war and we came out on top with our country and our homeland intact with a massive military. We had the atomic bomb. We had a monopoly, a short monopoly on the atomic bomb for a few years. And it just seemed like there was a trajectory, like there was an, a divinely inspired trajectory that was guiding America throughout the uh, early decades of the Cold War. And so I think we took it on ourselves after we saw the devastation of fascism in Europe, that we also had to stop another evil, the evil of communism in in Europe and throughout the world, but we failed to understand the complexities of why these countries were turning to communism. And we tried to attack these, these civil wars, as you said, and these internecine conflicts 
with a single dogmatic approach. And I think we fail to recognize the complexities of why these countries were leaning towards communism and why communism was so much more attractive to them than the free enterprise system that we espouse in this society. And that's because in many of these countries, the free enterprise system creates the haves and the have nots with a massive schism, a massive gap in the middle. And those failures were exposed in those societies in the post-World War II era. And I think too, that this generation, again, from 1960, from 1990, it was a white patriarchal misogynist group that was running the country and people were quest people could question them but you could never break into that bubble to break through it i agree i agree if father knows best and father doesn't don't father does not do nuance i think is one of the lessons that we have to learn and you know you mentioned george hw bush we saw perhaps the same failings with george w bush starting the two wars in afghanistan and iraq they failed to understand the nuance. At least the elder Bush recognized that once the United States and the coalition forces had driven Iraq out of Kuwait, that it was a, 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 a natural stopping point to maintain the balance of power in the Middle East. But George W. Bush, perhaps uh, his eyes clouded by visions of great victories and perhaps religious ideological beliefs and dogmatic political philosophies felt that he had to one-up his father and it led to, <clears throat> excuse me, devastation in Iraq. So yes, I, I think that hopefully that era has ended. I think we can see that in Joe Biden's foreign policy. I, I think if this was a generation before, we would have instituted a no-fly zone in Ukraine and we might be fighting World War III with the Russians right now. Agreed. And I just think it was a very complicated layers of problems. And on top of all of that, you know, as we know, our financial, the middle class was evaporating every decade. And I think by the 1990s is when a lot of people looked around and said, no, enough is enough now. Yeah, it's the metaphor of the boiling frog. Um, it happens so slowly that you don't notice it until one day you're like, oh my gosh, we're cooked, we're done. And I think a lot of things came to a head in the 1990s and i think we're living through that realization and the resolution of those conflicts in the, you know at where we are currently in the 21st century after robert mcnamara did resign as secretary of defense he, he was hired he a couple of things happened with him it's he left the defense department he received the medal of freedom he published a book and another interesting chapter in his life is he was hired as the president of the World Bank. I think his economics background would perhaps justify a position like that, you know, and also having worked in, you know, under two presidential, in working two presidential cabinets, it stands to reason that he would be in a position to make, you know, significant uh, economic policy throughout the world. And I think he wanted to take a step back and reevaluate who he was and where he was going. And as the decades wore on, I can't imagine the pain he went through to realize that everything they did was wrong. I think so. I think, you know, watching, I, I recall watching an interview with Robert McNamara and Charlie Rose. And throughout the interview, I was struck by the sense of a man haunted by the decisions he made that I think even towards the end of his life, towards the end of his life, Robert McNamara, I think, 
tried to rationalize the decisions he made. And I think he tried to use his analytical mind, his analytical approach to make sense of the great political decisions that were made under his guidance. And I don't think he fully came to terms with the the consequences of those decisions. I think on some level, he recognized that there were mistakes, but I think he, he was trying to rationalize his decisions. And I think all you had to do was just look at the body count to realize what is this guy dealing with? But he was, you use the word trauma, post-traumatic stress. Um, and I think he was traumatized by those decisions. And I think he seemed like a good man who made some bad choices and perhaps choices that no other person could have done better with. Um, but I, I saw him struggling with his conscience during that interview. While he was at the World Bank, he focused on reducing world poverty. He was the first World Bank leader to make this organization's top priority, and he was often praised for this. He also helped the World Bank fight disease, and he did retire from the World Bank in 1980. 81. As we know, McNamara has said that he and Kennedy and the Johnson administrations were wrong about Vietnam. He said if he had known in the 1960s what he knows now, he would have made a different decision. Yeah, that's the um, that's this frustration that I saw on his face that I, I think the the dire nature of the outcome, <clears throat> the dire nature of the outcome of the Vietnam War was so severe that he was Decades later, I think he was still struggling with the cost of that war. He wrote a memoir in 1995. He enjoyed food and cooking and started an orchid visit, orchard visit business in his retirement. A movie was released made of interviews and clips about McNamara in 2003 called The Fog of Wars, we both watched. He was a trustee of the California Institute of Technology and the Brookings Institute. And there is a scholarship of the World Bank in his honor. So having discussed all of that, what do you think, what's your impression of McNamara, the man, McNamara, the defense secretary and McMahon, McNamara, the head of the World Bank? I have a couple takeaways. Well, first, just so we can finish his synopsis, he did die in Washington, D.C. in 2009. He was 93 when he died and he is buried at the Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. My takeaway from Robert McNamara is he was a man defied, defined by World War II. And one of my interests, probably in the last five years, is our country was run by men, I believed, had childhood trauma due to, these people also went through the Great Depression. They went through World War II. And I think when they came out, they were not the same men as when they went in. And I do preface that to my own father's experience. I, I see pictures of him prior to the war. I see him after the war. My father died as a very young man, as you know. But even speaking to my mother, this generation had a lot of trauma. And I'm very curious to look at what drove their decision making for too long in our country and how it affected who we were. I think that perhaps that question will be the work of historians yet born. I think it's a very important question and it, it requires a sophisticated interdisciplinary approach. It's not just names, dates, and places, but I think a, a sophisticated psychological analysis of why people behave the way they do. 
um, only to be complicated by the fact that these people are now deceased. But it would be an interesting study of the decision-making process, why this, the, the decisions they made, what influenced those decisions. So it'd be very interesting. I mean, uh, just as a, a quick um, addition to this topic, you had someone sober and clear-headed like McNamara, but on the other hand, you had someone like a Curtis LeMay who was willing to go and drop bombs, nuclear weapons in Cuba. Um, he was willing to start uh, bombing China during the, the Korean War. So yes, it's interesting how the experiences of the Great Depression and World War II and the horrors of World War II influenced the decision-making process of those leaders in the subsequent decades. And on an interesting note, I started to look into Robert McNamara's marriage and children, and his son is Craig McNamara. He is writing a book now about his father. It's coming out in May. It's called, which I think is going to be fascinating, and it could be another podcast for us, is The Sins of the Father. Oh, that's and a very he runs, he And I... And I I agree. And he does run the orchard that his father, he did found with his father. So I, it's called Sierra Orchards and he established it in 1980. And he was probably in the forefront of organic living. So I think what the son wanted to revisit is what his father took away. He wanted to replenish. Yeah, that's a, an interesting point of closure, if you think, um, to sort of bookend uh, his father's life. And honestly, we could do a po podcast on Craig McNamara, but I am looking forward to his book. Again, it's called The Sins of the Father. So it's going to be interesting because everything we've talked about is really Robert McNamara's perspective. His son is his son has spoke publicly about his father, but not to the nuance. I think this book is going to open up and I think it's going to continue the conversation of the importance of Robert McNamara. I firmly agree. And I think the more we study the decisions that were made during his tenure uh, as a cabinet secretary, I think future administrations will be will benefit from that legacy, from that insight, and from the lessons learned from those mistakes that were made during the Vietnam era. Thank you, Nicholas. This was such an interesting conversation today. It really was. Uh, I think Bob McNamara, as time goes on, will serve as perhaps a cautionary tale of what not to do when it comes to these complex political, ideological, and social conflicts taking place not only within our society, but in other places in the world, that perhaps we have to tread a little bit more softly and go in with our eyes wide open rather than beating the drums of a particular set of frozen ideologies and rigid dogmas. And the situation we find ourselves in Ukraine, you know, everything old is new again. Exactly, exactly. So. So far, it looks like the lessons have been learned. Um, both the United States and NATO seem to be doing what they need to do in order to not escalate the war, but at least give the Ukrainians a fighting chance. And perhaps that's a consequence of the McNamara experience. I agree. And it's interesting that it's exactly true that they are taking a little more layered approach, which is what Robert, Robert McNamara recommended. And hopefully we have learned from our mistakes in the last 30 some years and that we, you know, we will stay out of war. Yes, war, one of humanity's most destructive tools. Thank you again, Nicholas. 
Thank you, Marie. It's a pleasure speaking with you on this most interesting and profound topic. Thank you again for joining myself and Nicholas Banton on The White Bikini today.